tonight. Appreciate that so much. Well, let's go to 1 Kings chapter 18 tonight, the book of 1 Kings and the chapter number 18. As this chapter opens, the nation of Israel is in trouble. Uh, there is a terrible famine in the land that has lasted now for three and a half years. It has not rained upon the earth for three and a half years. Uh, we get concerned if it doesn't rain for a couple of months. But three and a half years of drought. In fact, uh, so severe that there wasn't even dew upon the ground. So absolutely no moisture of any kind upon the land for this three and a half year period. And of course, the cause of all this was poor leadership. Uh, the king at this time was a man by the name of Ahab. His wife's name was Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel, pretty well-known names in the Bible. Uh, we could say a lot about them. Uh, God says it fairly succinctly in 1 Kings chapter 21, where he says in verse 25, there was none like unto Ahab which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. So God said there was nobody any more wicked than Ahab, and the person who was the catalyst to that wickedness was his wife Jezebel. So they're in command, they're in control of this land, worshiping Baal primarily and many false gods, but primarily Baal worship, a total rejection of God and his word. So God has allowed this famine to come, and it is very severe by the time this chapter opens. In fact, Ahab is so concerned for the cattle and for the beasts uh, that he, he's thinking, we're going to lose them. I mean, they're, they're going to die. We have no water. And so he's concerned that the cattle, the beasts are going to die. So he calls one of his uh, trusted servants, a man by the name of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah is a interesting character in this chapter. Verse 3 tells us that Obadiah feared the Lord from his youth. Verse 12 says he feared the Lord greatly. So we would assume from those phrases that Obadiah knew the Lord. He believed in God from early on in his life and, and had a perhaps sincere uh, belief in God and, and desired to follow him. But here he is in the middle of this famine, in the middle of this crisis, as governor of Ahab's house. You know, sometimes trials and difficulties reveal who we really are on the inside. So here's Obadiah, kind of this compromising position here of serving Ahab and yet fearing God. And Ahab calls Obadiah, and he, he says, we've got to find water. So they divided the land between them, and Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, the Bible says, behold, Elijah met him. Now, <clears throat> they thought Elijah was dead. In fact, this chapter tells us that Ahab had taken an oath. He had made a promise to the kingdom that Elijah was dead. And they haven't seen him now for three and a half years. We know where he was because we can go back and read the record. But God had taken care of Elijah, sent him up to the brook Cherith, you recall, and sent uh, the ravens twice a day to feed him. And uh, he drank of the brook there. When the brook dried up, God sent him down to the widow's house. And again, God sustained her meal and the prophet through her. And, and God always takes care of his people, doesn't he? Uh, despite what's going on in the world, God knows us and loves us and cares for us. So all of a sudden, here's Elijah standing in front of Obadiah, 
Obadiah thinks he's maybe seeing a spirit or something coming back from the dead. And so he falls down before him and he says, Art thou that my Lord Elijah? Is it really you? And Elijah says, yeah, it's me. Uh, go tell your boss I want to see him. And Obadiah says, uh, I, 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 I can't do that. If I go tell Ahab that you're alive, he's going to want to see you. And I'll bring him out here, and, and, and when I do, the Spirit of God will take you somewhere. I don't know where you are, and, and when he can't find you, he's going to kill me. Whenever you live a double life, you're always afraid you're going to get caught. And Obadiah just got caught. So Elijah says, okay, I'll go see him myself. So by the time we get to about verse 15, 16 in this chapter, Elijah is walking into the oval office of King Ahab. And when Ahab sees Elijah, he says, you're the problem. You're the reason we don't have any water. You're the trouble around here. And Elijah says, no, I'm not the problem. You are. You've forsaken God. You've forsaken his word. And this famine is a result of your wickedness. And Ahab says, no, you're the problem. And Elijah says, no, you're the problem. And they begin to argue like third graders on the playground. <laughs> and finally, Elijah says, tell you what, let's have a contest. Let's go up to the top of Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was, in a sense, a religious place, but it was kind of a neutral religious place. It was a, it was a place where various religious groups would come and offer sacrifices to their gods. And so Elijah says, let's go up to Carmel, and you bring your false prophets, and uh, I'll go up there, and, and, and we'll build two altars. And uh, we'll put uh, wood on the altar, we'll put a sacrifice on the altar, but we'll have no fire. And then we'll pray. Your prophets can pray to your Baal God, I'll pray to the God of heaven, and whichever God answers by fire, and consumes the sacrifice, will be declared the winner. Well, apparently Ahab has a little competitive spirit in him. He says, you got a deal. So now this Super Bowl of gods is going to take place. And word begins to spread that there's going to be this contest on the top of Mount Carmel. And I can picture that day. I, I can picture that scene. I, I can see those false prophets. There were 450 prophets of Baal. There were 400 prophets of the groves. So 850 false prophets are marching up to the top of Mount Carmel. And I'm sure their head is held high. They're the majority. They're going to win. There's more of them. Uh, they're in control. They've got Ahab's blessing. And they're walking with a lot of pompous and ceremony up to the top of this, this hill. And then there's, of course, Ahab and Jezebel. They're, they're headed up there as well. And their entourage of servants, no doubt, are carrying them with all of the glitz and the glamour of the kingdom. And then there's the people. People got word that this was going to take place, and they wanted to see it. And so the people began to gather and swarm, and they began to make their way up to the top of Carmel. And then there was Elijah. And I kind of picture him walking alone, don't you? Perhaps maybe in a, a spirit of prayer. This peculiar man, as the Bible calls him, this hairy man that people made fun of, walking alone, perhaps uttering a prayer or two to his God as he comes to the top of that place called Carmel. Well, he gets up there and he says, Elijah does, there's more of you, so you guys go first. 
So the prophets of Baal, they built an altar of stones and they put a, some wood on the altar and they took a bullock and they cut it in four pieces and they laid it on the altar. And then they began to pray. And they prayed to Baal. And they prayed. And they prayed. And they prayed. But nothing happened. Because Baal is a god, but he's a little g-god. He's a stone god. He has eyes, but he can't see. He has ears, but he can't hear. And so they're praying, but nothing's happening. And Elijah's over here mocking them. He's saying, uh, it's okay. Give, give it time. We got all day. <laughs> you know, maybe he's on a journey. Needs to get back before he can help you. Uh, maybe he's sleeping. Cry a little louder. He's mocking them. And they're praying, desperately praying. In fact, they got so desperate, the Bible says in this chapter, they took knives and lancets and began to cut themselves, and the blood gushed out on the altar. What a scene. By the way, cutting is not new. So here are these these prophets of Baal desperately praying to their God, and nothing's happening, and they prayed for seven hours. And nothing. Well, finally, about the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. You guys have had your chance. Now it's my turn. Now, what do you do when it's your turn? What do you do when you need God to answer a prayer? What do you do when all eyes are on you? And you stand alone needing a miracle. What do you do? Let's see what Elijah did. Let's pick up the story in verse 29. You can check the first 29 verses to see if I was telling you the truth. But in verse 29, let's pick it up there. And it came to pass when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. So the first step we see here that Elijah takes when it's his turn is he fixes the broken. He repairs the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Now, as I said earlier, Carmel was a place where people would go and they would offer these sacrifices. No doubt Israel had been there from time to time and had offered sacrifices to the God of heaven, but other altars were there as well. So Elijah, he comes to this altar that had been used by Israel and it's all broken down. It's all tumbled over. The stones are not set right. And, and it's been at least three and a half years since anybody's been up there to offer a sacrifice. And so Elijah begins to repair this altar of the Lord. Can I remind us tonight that God's fire of revival will not fall on a broken altar? So we must ask ourselves as we seek revival, is there anything broken in my life? Is there anything broken in my relationship with God? How are we? Are we on good terms with God tonight? Did we talk to him today? Did we listen to him today? Did we allow his word to penetrate our heart? Did we serve him today in some way? Did we talk to anybody else about him today? 
How is our relationship with, with God? Is there anything between our soul and the Savior tonight? We want revival. We need prayers to be answered. We have miracles that need to take place, but God cannot work when our lives are broken in our relationship with him. I find that sometimes as my relationship with God gets broken, it automatically follows that my horizontal relationships with people get broken as well. And we must ask ourselves, well, how is it with me and my spouse tonight? Or how is it with, with me and my parents or uh, with me and my children? How is it with me and my fellow church members or those at work or those who live across the street or whatever? How are my relationships tonight? Is there anything broken in our life? And by the way, aren't you glad that when stuff gets broken in our life, God's in the repair business? Amen. I'm glad that it doesn't have to stay broken. When, when things fall off the wheel of the potter, what does he do? He, he takes it and makes it again as seems good in the hand of the potter. And we don't have to walk out tonight saying, yeah, my life's a wreck. My, 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 my life's a mess. I, I messed up. I'm not right with God. I'm not right with, my, with people in my family. I, I'm not right with the pastor. I'm, not, I, I'm just a mess. Well, you don't have to stay that way. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. For he'll have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I'm glad that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, Micah 7 verse 18 says that God delights in mercy. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? I don't delight in mercy. Sometimes I, I give mercy, but I don't delight in it. <laughs> I mean, if somebody does me wrong, I want to do them wrong back. I want to get even, but that's not God. When we offend God, when we get out of sorts with God, God longs for us. Even as the prodigal's father was waiting for him to return, so our God waits for us to return and say, I've sinned. And he's more than happy and more than willing to forgive, to cleanse, to renew, to, to re-engage us in the work of God. And so tonight we must ask ourselves, is there something broken in our life? In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man, therefore, purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. My wife and I have been married almost 49 years, and over those years, we've had some pets. Uh, we presently don't have a pet, uh, but uh, we've had some over the years. When we first got married, we had a gerbil. And I don't think that really qualifies as a pet. <laughs> uh, that thing was just kind of a, a domesticated rat or something. I'm not sure what it was. But uh, we had a gerbil for a time. I really don't remember what happened to it, but, but we don't have it anymore. Uh, and over the years, we've had some cats, and we've had fish, and we've had dogs, and, and uh, we never had anything really exotic, you know, like a boa constrictor or anything like that. But we've had some pets, and especially when the kids were growing up, it was great. And I think, if I think back, I probably could, could come up with a number, but I think we've had five or six dogs over the course of our married life. And I love dogs. I would love to have one now. And, and, but, but our lives are just a little too complex for that. So, so we had these dogs. And you know, in all the years that we had a dog, I was never tempted, not even in the least little bit, I was never once tempted to ever drink out of the dog dish. 
Now, where I live in Southern California, it gets hot. It gets real hot. In the summertime, it gets into the triple digits, and it stays there for a bit. And it gets hot, and it's a dry heat, and you lose hydration quickly outside. And I would be out playing with the kids or doing some work in the yard, and I would come into the house, and I would be extremely thirsty. And I would walk in the kitchen, and right there by the kitchen cabinet was the dog dish. And it was beautiful. I mean, it was a, it was a, kind, of a kind of a light blue color, kind of a Carolina blue. It had two compartments, one for food, one for water. It was a nice dog dish. I mean, I bet we paid... I bet we paid two ninety five for the thing at Walmart. It was a nice dog dish. And it always had water in it. And the, and the easiest, simplest thing to do to quench my thirst would have been to just drop to my knees and lap water out of the dog dish. But I was never even tempted. No, I, I, I walked way past the dog dish. I mean, two or three steps past it, all the way to the cabinet, opened it up, pulled out a glass, uh, went over to the refrigerator and got some ice cubes and got some water and quenched my thirst. Why? Well, a dog dish is a vessel. But it's not a vessel of honor, right? It holds water, but it's not a vessel of honor. May I just say kindly to all of us, God's not going to send revival to dog dish Christians. We've got to fix the broken. But secondly, he fills the barrels. Now look at verse um, number 30. Uh, verse 31, and Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water and poured on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. Now, this seems a little strange, doesn't it? Because the contest is to have an altar, put some wood on it, take a sacrifice, put it on there, and pray, and ask God to consume with fire the sacrifice. Now, I'm not, a, I'm, I'm not an outdoorsman kind of a person. I like the outdoors, but I'm not, a, I'm not a live in the woods kind of guy, you know, eat tree bark and drink water out of cacti or something like that. That's just not me. But I do know this about camping and living outdoors or whatever. If you're trying to start a fire, you don't want wet wood. So here's this this prospect of calling fire down to devour this sacrifice. But before Elijah prays, he says, fill four barrels with water and pour it on. By the way, have you ever wondered where they got the water? It hasn't rained for three and a half years. First part of the chapter, there's no water for the beasts or the cattle. They're all about to die. Where'd they get the water? Well, the Bible doesn't say. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like vacation Bible school. Come back tomorrow, boys and girls, and we'll find out what happened to the missionary. Oh, tomorrow's Saturday. Sorry. <laughs> See you next year. Bye. The Bible doesn't say where they got the water. So we're left to some 
conjecture, I guess, about that. Some would say, well, the Mediterranean Sea. But I've been to Mount Carmel. That's a long walk. That's a very long walk. And it's already the time of the evening sacrifice. Um, And the story goes rapidly here, but Elijah didn't say, fill 12 barrels with water. He said, fill four. And they did, and they poured it on. And when they did, he said, fill them again. And they poured them on. And then he said, fill them a third time. So there was, there was not time before the shining of the sun for those people to get to the Mediterranean and back once, much less three times. So in my mind, the Mediterranean's out. So where do they get the water? Well, I don't know, because the Bible doesn't say. And I would be foolish to say this is where they got the water. But I thought about this. In verse 21... Before all this begins, Elijah says to the people that had come there to watch, he said, how long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. So he's encouraging the people to get on a side. He doesn't want spectators up there. He says, if you believe Baal's the true God, then go over there and stand with those prophets. If you believe the God of heaven is the true God, come stand with me. And the Bible says the people answered him not a word. So they, they were noncommittal at that point. But he challenged them before all this started with choosing a side. Well, now those same people have watched the prophets of Baal pray for seven hours with no answer. I mean, those guys are over there, you know, trying to bind up their wounds from the cutting. They're still bleeding and gushing on the altar. They see now that the Baal God has failed to answer. So Elijah's challenging them now, fill four barrels with water. I believe that no one made that trip to the top of Mount Carmel without some drinking water. As scarce as the water would have been, they would not have attempted that trip without having something to drink with them. You wouldn't go up there today on a four-wheeler without water. It's desert, and it's a long trip. So they would have brought some, as we would call maybe canteens or, or water bottles, something with which to hydrate themselves. And Elijah is saying, I want you to take that water, that which you can see, and I want you to give it to the unseen God. And you're going to see what he can do with it. And so those people took that precious water that they had by faith. How are they going to get home? Well, if you read the rest of the chapter, we're not going to get that far tonight, but if you read the rest of the chapter, water was not going to be a problem on the way home. (laughs) It was going to rain like they'd never seen it rain before. So he's saying, you trust God with what you have, and you're going to see God provide what you don't have. Isn't that what God says? Give, and it shall be given unto you, right? So they give their water. They, they pour it in these barrels, and they pour it on the altar. And Elijah looks out, and he says, uh, some of you still have water. Pass those offering barrels again. <laughs> and so they filled them again the second time, and they poured it on. And Elijah said, look, some of you are holding out. If you're going to trust God, you've got to trust him completely. 
No plan B's. Fill them again. And they fill them a third time. Can I encourage you tonight to fill some barrels by faith? We have to pray prayers that only God can answer. You know, sometimes we pray prayers that, that in the back of our mind, we think, well, if God doesn't come through, I, I know what I'll do, <laughs> right? I, I got a plan B. If God doesn't answer this, I can always do this. We've got to have enough faith to believe that God can answer prayers when we can't see how, when we can't understand how, but by faith. You see, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. How many times do I hear people say to their pastor, Pastor, I just don't see how we're going to do this. I don't see how we're going to pay for that. I don't see how we can support any more missionaries. Pastor, I don't see how we can build that building. Pastor, I don't see how I can get victory over this stubborn habit. You know what? You're not supposed to see it. We walk by faith, not by sight. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. So, Fill some barrels by faith tonight. I don't know what's on your prayer list, but, but, but why don't you, like Elijah told Elisha, uh, you've asked a hard thing. But nevertheless, if thou see me when I be taken from thee, it shall be so. Elijah had asked a hard thing, a double portion of Elijah's spirit. But you know what? He got it. And God specializes in those impossible prayers. So he fills the barrels. But then notice thirdly, he focuses beyond. Now let's just review a little bit. Go back in the chapter and, uh, and, and look at verse 17. Because this is back when Elijah goes to meet Ahab. And it says, And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubled Israel? And he, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou... And thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. So here, he's in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the king of Israel. And Elijah's attention, his focus is on calling black, black, and white, white here, right? He's saying, you're the problem, you're the reason, we're in this trouble because of your wickedness. You're forsaken of the Lord. He's focused on King Ahab and his sin. Okay, go down to verse 21. I mentioned this a minute ago. Elijah came unto all the people. We're on the top of Carmel now. And he said, how long halt you between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So now he's, he's focused on the crowd. He, he's focused on these spectators. And he's trying to encourage them. Come on, make a decision here. Don't stand in the middle. Get on a side. He's focused on them. Go down to verse uh, 27. We mentioned this earlier as well. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them, the false prophets, and said, cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's on a journey or peradventure he sleepeth must be awake. So here he's focused now on these false prophets, and he's given them the raspberries, we would say. He's given them a hard time because their prayers aren't being answered. So we see him focused on Ahab. We see him focused on the crowd. We see him focused on these false prophets. But now it's his turn. Now all eyes are on him. And notice what he does. Verse, um, uh, chapter 18, look at verse uh, 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I, thy servant, 
and I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Who's he focused on now? He's focused on God. He's focused above all the peripheral that's around him. Now, now this couldn't have been easy. He's feeling the glare of those false prophets. He's feeling the, the stern look of Ahab and Jezebel. He, he's feeling the pressure of that multitude before him. All eyes are on him, but Elijah's eyes aren't on them. His eyes are not on what's around him. His, his eyes are not on the circumstances or the conditions around him. His eyes are focused above all of that on God. And friend, if we're going to see revival in these days, we got to take our eyes off of everything going on around us because everything going on around us is going to discourage us from having revival. Everything going on around us is going to, is going to keep us from having revival. If we listen to the, the press and we listen to the news and we listen to social media and we listen to our friends and neighbors and we, we hear all the chatter about this and that, our eyes are never going to be on God. And so we've got to purposely look beyond. We've got to focus beyond all the peripheral things and set our affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. There's a lot going on around us. There's a lot happening in our world that can easily distract us and detour us and defeat us, but we've got to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So he fixes the broken, he fills the barrels, he focuses beyond, but then notice finally, he follows boldly. Now in verse 30, 38, he's prayed now, and the Bible says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, you, you live in an area where you have some fires, and you've seen fire do some devastating things. We have a lot of fires in California. And I, I drove through a region last summer uh, to a camp where there wasn't a a green tree anywhere. Fire had gone through that region and just had turned everything barren and black, charred, gone, except for the camp. The fire somehow uh, missed them. But you've seen what fire can do. But I'm telling you, I've never seen a fire burn a rock. But this one did. Did you notice it there? When this fire fell, the prayer was to consume the sacrifice. But when God's fire fell, it consumed not only the bullock, but the wood, the stones in the altar, the dust, the water in the trench. I mean, I don't know if anybody was peeking during the prayer, but when they looked up, there was nothing there. Everything they had seen when they bowed their heads to pray, when they looked up, it's gone. Well, what was the response to this? Verse 39. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. Wow. Wouldn't you love to hear that today from some of our leaders? Wouldn't it be wonderful if President Biden would get on television tonight and say, I got saved today, and the Lord, he is the God. 
The Lord, he is the God. You say, Brother Gage, I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. What happened here? During the reign of the most wicked king that ever lived. It happened twice in the book of Daniel. Remember when they, when they made that golden image and Nebuchadnezzar said, if you don't bow down, I'm throwing you to a fiery furnace. Remember that? And they heated that thing up seven times hotter than it ever been heated before. The guys that threw them in there, they, they were burnt to a crisp. And the king, he looks in that fire and he says, uh, didn't we put three in there? I see four. And the fourth is like the son of God. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come. Come out. And when they came out, the Bible says their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And when the king saw that, he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, whoever their God is is now our God. Right? Remember when Daniel prayed? It was against the law to pray. They, they made this phony, phony law that nobody could ask a petition of God for, 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 for 30 days. And uh, Daniel, knowing the writing was signed, went into his house, his windows in his chamber being opened in, toward Jerusalem. He kneeled down on his knees, prayed and gave thanks to his God three times a day as he did it four times. Didn't matter what the law was, he was going to pray. And of course they caught him. And the punishment for praying was you were cast to a den of lions. And so they throw Daniel in the den of lions. And Daniel slept like a kitten that night. The king, he couldn't sleep. He, he could not sleep. He couldn't find the right number on that posturepedic bed. He just, he tried, but he couldn't sleep. And finally, about breaking a day, he goes down to that lion's den. He says, Daniel, are you okay? Daniel's like, yeah, king, kind of early. What's up? Come out of there, Daniel. And Daniel comes out, and the king takes those men who had made that law, and he throws them into that lion's den, and before their bodies hit the ground, the lions had crushed them and devoured them. And the king said, the God of Daniel is now our God. This stuff has happened before. People in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith, they subdued kingdoms. God can do it again. Well, that's kind of where we usually end the story, but look at verse 40. And Elijah said unto them, again, I'm assuming these are the people that had come to watch, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Whoa. So after this is all over, Elijah says, line those prophets of Baal up at the brook. So he goes down there. They're all lined up, 450 of them. He goes up to the first guy in line, takes out his sword, and cuts him in half. Second guy, cuts him in half. Third guy, cuts him in half. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been standing in that line, I think I would have been nudging my buddy. Hey, he's coming this way. Let's stop him. I mean, there were 450 of them. It's only one of him. They didn't dare stop him. They had just seen his God bring down fire that devoured rocks. You don't mess with that guy. And friend, when we fix the broken, when we fill some barrels by faith, when we focus beyond all this stuff going on around us, and we begin to follow boldly with you and God, you have a majority. 
You say, well, Brother Gatch, I'm just not very courageous. I mean, I'm just, this kind of stuff scares me, you know, taking a stand and maybe some laws passed. And, you know, it just makes me uncomfortable. And I, I, the pastor can be courageous if he wants to, but I just don't have it in me. Well, go back to point one, because Proverbs 28 says, the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. When our lives are right, God will give you the boldness to stand. God will give you the courage to be that witness. God will give you that courage to live for Jesus Christ in a wicked culture. I love chapter 18 of 1 Kings, my favorite chapter in the Bible. We haven't even covered all of it. I hate chapter 19. I wish it wasn't in the Bible, but it is. So I want to close with drawing your attention. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So Jezebel sends this threat to Elijah that he's going to be dead in 24 hours. And you can read the rest of chapter 19, Elijah runs. This man of great faith, this man of great courage, this man of power, he runs. Which shows that he was human just like you and me. And susceptible to attack. And so he runs. And later in the chapter, you find him in a cave. And God meets him there. And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, God, I've been very jealous for you. I've done everything according to your word. I did exactly what you told me to do. And now, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that hasn't bowed to Baal. Everybody else has caved. I'm the only one standing for you, God. And now, they want my life. I'm out. I'm done. That's it. I didn't sign up for this. I want out. Just kill me. I want to come home. And God hears those prayers too. And God says, Elijah, okay, I'll bring you home. I'm not going to kill you. I love you. I'll send a whirlwind. But Elijah, before I order that whirlwind, uh, get out a piece of paper. I need you to do a couple things. First, I want you to go down and find Hazael. Hazael is one of my men, Elijah. He has not bowed to Baal. He is faithful to me. And I want you to find him, and I want you to anoint him as the next king of Syria because he's one of mine, and he's faithful. When you get that done, I want you to find Jehu. Now, you'll have to move fast. He, he drives furiously. But find Jehu. He's one of my men. He has not bowed to Baal. He loves me. You anoint him as the next king of Israel. When you get that done, I need you to find Elisha. He's got a name kind of like yours, but a little different. He'll be plowing with the yoke of oxen. You find him, and you put your mantle on him, because he's going to be the next prophet in your room. 
He's going to do twice as many miracles as you ever thought about doing because he's one of my men. He is not about to bail. He loves me. He's faithful to me. And Elijah, if any of those three tell you no, you come back because I have 7,000 more that have not bowed to Baal. They're faithful to me. Now, you know what's amazing about this? Elijah didn't know any of these guys. He said, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left. And God said, no, I, I have Hazael, I have Jehu, I have Elijah. I got 7,000. How could Elijah not see these people? When we get our eyes on ourself, you can be standing in the middle of a miracle and not even see it. Because your eyes are turned inward instead of outward. And friends, I believe we're living in miraculous days. I don't, I don't think there, there have been more exciting days than the days we're living in since the book of Acts. Now, they went to prison in the book of Acts, and we may go. <laughs> but people got saved in prison. Churches got started because of men like the Philippian jailer. We're living in exciting days. But if we continue to have our focus simply on ourselves and fail to lift up our eyes, first to Jesus and then on the fields, we're going to miss a miracle. God is a miracle-working God, and he wants to do miracles today. He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God of the Elijah of chapter 18 is the God we can serve today. Let's not be the Elijah of chapter 19 and say, well, I'm the only one left. I just, let's just get this over with. <laughs> you know, let me just go to heaven and let the world go to hell. No. Let's serve him in these days. Fix the broken. Fill some barrels by faith. Focus beyond all this stuff around you. And then follow boldly and watch what God will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for both positive and negative from Elijah's life. We like to think about the positive, but Lord, he was, as James said, a man with passions like as we. And yet he prayed that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years. This was his idea, not yours. He asked you that it might not rain, that you might show yourself among these people, and you did. And Lord, may we have that kind of faith of Elijah to pray and then the courage to obey you to live for you in spite of the opposition. Because, Lord, you're able to do miracles today. You're not limited to a time frame or space. You can do things today. And, Lord, if we're honest, we all need some miracles. We need some prayers answered. And if we don't, there's sure a whole lot of people around us that do. People that need to be saved. A nation that needs to turn back to you. A church that needs to see you blessed. And so, Lord, there are needs, and help us to believe that you can meet those needs today. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask Mrs. First just to come to the piano and play a little bit for us. And in the quietness of this moment, let's start at the beginning. Is anything broken? Is anything broken? When I ask that question, does God put his finger on anything specific? Whatever he does... It can be fixed. It's just a prayer away.
prayer of confession, a prayer of forsaking, and God promises his mercy. Then let's ask God to increase our faith. Let's put some things on our prayer list that are hard things and see what God will do. And let's ask the Lord to put some, some blinders on us to the circumstances and all the stuff around us and help us to fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and give us the courage to follow him. As the piano plays, you talk to the Lord.